Thanks for clicking on Behind the Buzz, uh, Public Fit Theatre Company's occasional podcast discussing the myriad details that make up the production of our season of stage plays and, and readings. Uh, this is episode number four of season number two. And today we're continuing our focus on playwrights with the help of Craig Wright, author of our upcoming production of Recent Tragic Events, opening February 4th, running for three weekends at the usual place. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF. And as always, I'm joined by artistic director Anne-Marie Pereff. Hi there. Hello. And then I, wa I want to jump in right away because I'm really excited to be able to talk this afternoon with Craig Wright. So let me do the introduction real quick. Craig Wright is a screenwriter and playwright, best known probably for Lost and Six Feet Under and for creating the TV series Dirty Sexy Money. He attended St. John's University of Minnesota before moving on to attain a Master's of Divinity degree from the United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. I'm pretty sure that's in Minnesota too. Uh, listing his television credits would take up most of the next few hours, but his plays include the four uh, Pine City plays all set in, in, in Pine City, Minnesota, Molly's Delicious, The Pavilion, Melissa's Arctic, and Orange Flower Water, which, which longtime APF fans will remember from our 2015 uh, reading season. Uh, other plays include Grace, Mistakes were made, and of course, recent tragic events build at the time of its premiere in 2002 as the quote, first post 9-11 comedy about 9-11. Uh, the Jerome Fellowship at age 21, apprenticeships from uh, the McKnight Foundation and the NEA, and the recipient of the 2009 Horton Foote Excellent in, Excellence in American Playwriting Award from Baylor, yeah. he and I, are also nearly exactly the same age. Fascinating. Right, <laughs> Craig Wright, thank you so much for taking the time to, to, to join us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Oh, and I forgot about the bands. Are you still Are you still with the, the, the Tropicals and, and Kangaroo? I, do you still do I'm that? I'm not, but I still write songs and I'm actually getting ready to record an album in Chicago in March. What sort of album? Um, just an album of all the songs that I never got to put on anything else. Well, that's fun. Leftover songs and stuff. That I what wanted. type of music? And also, you know, songs that I've written since then. Um, I don't know how you would characterize it. Nowadays on iTunes or something like that, it would probably be, be called Americana. It's probably, you know, most like Simon and Garfunkel kind of music. All right on. So who's your, who's your Garfunkel? Um, me. I am my own Gar <laughs> I am my own Garfunkel. <laughs> I used to have a partner in the tropicals, but um, we don't make music together anymore. Oh, and that's either too bad or no, a we blessed just, relief. He's a teacher in Minnesota and I live here, so we just don't do it. Oh, right on. Well, well let, let's jump right into this conversation about recent tragic events. Craig Wright, is there such a thing as free will? Oh, um, I would say that's a fake question. Really? <laughs> yeah, there's that, so that, much on that, too. That's my... That's my term for that kind of thing. Questions that, by the way, I know you're sincere in asking it, but I call it a fake question because it's a question that that you can never know the answer to. No, I'm, I'm kind of sincere in asking it, but I know I'm, you I'm, are. Well, no, except and, that it's I agree that there's no real answer for it. It's the, it's the back and forth that's interesting about it. Right. It's the sort of perspective that one has on free will and determinism or or not. Right. So what I would say is. That. Whether there's free will or not is a question I can't consider, but we can talk about how life feels. We can say sometimes life feels free and yeah. other times it doesn't feel free. And those are two feelings we have. <laughs> and, and that's the most I can commit to it. I think, you know, recent tragic events um, talks a lot and dwells a lot upon determinism. Right. Because at the time, my feeling was, I was very annoyed with, like like the character Ron, I was really annoyed with how surprised everybody was. Right. That this had happened when it seemed like such a fait accompli. It was just a question of when something like this would happen. Yeah. Um, so I was definitely dwelling on the side of determinism at that point with regard to that situation, you know? Yeah, well, that is why I asked the question, because it is a big part of of that play. And I'm well, you sort of answered the question. I was curious about where you sort of landed in that argument. He has that that discussion with Joyce Carol Oates and who seems to be very 
pro uh, free will to the point of saying without free will, we're not really humans. We don't really, we can't express love without such, such things. Right. Um, but you're saying you're on the opposite side when you wrote the play. Has that changed? Um, I would say, well, definitely I've changed. I, it's not so much changed from one to the other. It's more that the terms of the argument, as I put it to myself, have changed. Um, but at the time I was definitely on Ron's side. Um, but, you know, most of the time with um, my plays, I, I, I used to, in the past anyway, I would usually start out a play with a negative formulation, something I was angry about or upset about. And then by the end, I discovered I had to find something to affirm. Um, and that was an honest search for me. Like I go as far as I can. I think, okay, well, what is there left to say, say good things about if all this is true? And I really feel like more than any recent tragic events of my favorite play of all the plays I've written. Oh, is that true? Oh yeah. And mm -hmm. to me, the quintessence of why I love it is, is the ending where, um, where Ron wants to shut off the TV but doesn't want to do it because the stage manager has said he has to. <laughs> and so he's caught between his, so his freedom and the destiny are the same. And, and what do you do then? Yeah. How do you manifest your freedom when your free will and the, the rules of the game both dictate that you do the same thing. You're stuck. Yeah. And that feels like such a perfect moment to me. It's such a perfect effigy so to speak of a of a problem we feel inside us that i just love it there, there seems to be a popular i don't know how in tune the young person's zeitgeist you are i feel like an old man these days but there seems to be a, a sort of popular resurgence of free will denialism um uh, among people who are sort of tired of the state of the world and, and and angry about COVID. And that's why for me, recent tragic events seem so, so current that the sort of denial of, of any agency that we have in a world that seems to be crazy right now um, mm -hmm. is well played out. Do you, are you connected to that at all? Is there a, is there a, a sense in your world and the work that you do that, that we're seeing that sort of uh, attitude run rampant? Um. I, I think what a lot of people are see, are fe feeling or what I'm seeing is a lot of what people felt that day on 9-11 and the day after, which is a sense of unreality, a sense of topsy-turviness about this can't be real, this can't be happening. Like, how can everything be so crazy and impossible? Um, I I was struck the other day by, I was it started by watching something on Netflix, which I almost never do. I never like watch anything. And I was watching something and thinking like, how is this a show? Like, how did people get paid to do this? And then that started tumbling in my mind to like, how could 800,000 plus people be defined as having died from this disease? And then our government offers people four free tests. Four. Yeah. And, and then, and then, the New York Times runs an op-ed piece saying, we don't understand why the Biden presidency is so disappointing. And I'm like, I don't even have to pick a side here. It's just nuts. Yeah. It's crazy. And then you tell me that the Republicans can gerrymander districts at the disadvantage of Democrats and Democrats can't do anything about it. Like, and Putin wants to invade the Ukraine and we're not going to do anything about that. Like, there's no firm place to stand on anything. Like, I don't know where the reality is to put my foot on so I can kick with the other leg. And I think a lot of people are feeling that. And so um, I think when people watch the play and remember what it felt like that day, I think it'll, they'll resonate very much with how they felt right before they walked in the theater. Well, that's why I actually uh, chose the play for the season, because we read the play during lockdown. And um, you talk about the new American way in, mm. in the text. And I felt like, yeah, we're experiencing the new American way right now. We're having uh, and I do feel a sense of dread and a sense of feeling out of control, much like people felt during 9-11. But I don't want to talk about COVID anymore. I'm so tired of talking about COVID. But I do want to talk about my personal feelings about living through this situation. But I'm so inundated with all of this chaos and uh, and unreality 
that I can't even imagine going to a play that directly discusses uh, COVID. But I want to have that feeling of catharsis with mm-hmm. people in the theater. And I feel like your play does that without directly hitting us over the head with the COVID talk. Well, recent so. tragic events is almost the perfect play for that sort of um, uh, release in, in this time. I think I'm really glad to hear that it's your, your favorite. Not that oh, yeah. I have a horse in that race, but. Well, to go back to what you said, when you asked me whether I feel that there's a, a strong will towards determinism, so to speak, in the culture, if we switch the words a little bit, I can agree with you, which is to say, I think people feel like a lot of things, they've had to recognize now that a lot of things are beyond their control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely in the air that, wow, like, I'm not in control of my life completely. Does that, I, I want to get a little wonky here for a second. Does that, does that encourage you and, and um, sort of prod you towards writing? You got very animated in, in talking about that horrible Netflix show, which I really want to put you on the spot to name, but I won't, I won't do, but uh, does it, does it, does it sort of move you in the direction of wanting to get some of this stuff down on paper and create another perspective? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I'm working on a play right now that is very, very, it's, you would never guess that it's about that. Yeah. Like I always have this habit of writing at such a oblique angle from what people think I'm doing. Like I was commissioned by Hartford stage to write a play about Jesus. And I wrote a play called the unseen, which is about two guys in two adjacent cells who are tortured all the time. Yeah. They both have a theory. They both have a theory about whoever's in the middle between them. And when I turned it in, they said, like, we told you to write a play about Jesus. And I'm like, I did. <laughs> He's the third character in the He's middle. The third dude. <laughs> um, and so so I am working on a play that where the main point of the play really is, but in a hopeful way, um, you don't know what story you're in. You 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 can think, you know, what story you're in in life, but you don't. And um, if you're depressed and you feel like, oh, my God, my story is a tragedy, you can if you just stick around long enough, it might turn out to be something else. And so that's very interesting to me right now is that you don't know what story you're in. I, 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 I want to ask you a little bit about that, not specifically, because I'm sure you want to keep those details pretty close to the vest. But I, I'm curious about the you don't know what sort of story you're in. It seems like a fun bit of theatrics and you seem attracted to theatrics. I, I mean, specifically the the coin flip, the fake coin flip. And I should say to everyone out there listening, there will be some spoilers here about about recent tragic events. So so tune out if you don't want to know all the complete ins and outs, but uh, the, the coin flip in, in recent tragic events and the sort of breaking of the fourth wall with the fake stage manager reading from the script and the, the hand puppet. And in another play, one of my favorites, actually, Grace, the first three minutes of which is literally a murder in reverse. Very right. theatrical. Those, those theatrical elements seem to really appeal to you. Is that a fair thing to say? Put simply, I guess I would just say that even though it's a very, very serious play about very serious things, the main character is um, basically comes on stage at the beginning of the play and makes it clear that he doesn't like musicals and thinks that musicals can never be about the real details of life or really get into the real issues of being a human being, that they're all sort of fake. And then he gradually realizes he's in a musical <laughs> and and has to finally uh, consent to it and sing. <laughs> oh, are, are you and are you and your own Garfunkel doing all that as well? The the music uh, and all that. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write the first draft of the songs, but um, I'm sure they'll replace me with somebody famous at some point. <laughs> Isn't that? But I have to write. I have to write the songs to kind of know what they what they're about. What 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 sort of impact does your your um, background in theology have on on this sort of work? Oh, um, I'd say a big one, but it's more procedural than it is conceptual in the sense that I don't try to transmit theological ideas through my work. Other, I, I try to leave things pretty balanced that way. Um, but uh, my work is heavily informed by the sacramental process of like gathering in front of people and performing rituals. Sure, yeah. And how you can kind of 
help people. I don't know, by, by performing, I think an effigy is one of my favorite words. It's like, I, I said to somebody once, the reason theater is so successful as an effigy of human life is that human life already feels like an effigy. Oh, wow. And therefore we can make the leap. You know, we watch it like plays to me are very much like life. You're generally stuck with who you are. You can't, <laughs> you can't change it that much. Uh, aside from suicide, you have to stay till the end of the play. Sure. Um, and you can, so you kind of have to stay and be who you are. And then you have to find your wiggle room inside that as a way to feel like you have your dignity. And that's another free, that's another free will argument though, isn't it? Where you're, you're, you're staying through the end and are you the author of your own story or are you letting the story happen to you? Yes. And it, it, it sounds to me like you believe that you are the author of your own tale all the way through to the end. So suicide notwithstanding. Yeah. I would say care. I mean, I believe, you know, that old thing that character is destiny. Yeah. Right. But the question is, well, who gives you your character? How'd you get that? Um, I think it just go, that kind of question goes around and around and around. Um, but I think we all, I think with theater, I'll just speak for theater. There's a general prejudice in the theater right? Towards um, consenting to be determined. Hmm. What do I mean by that? Hmm. What I'm saying is, since in general, the actors perform the play, since in general, the actors maintain their characterization, plays tend to be really good arguments for the idea that there's a pleasure in consenting to be part of the show. That's mm -hmm. a message that comes through in plays quite often because that's how plays work, right? You kind of voice to the stage manager uh, at the top of act two in recent tragic events where uh, she discusses um, not really being a stage manager. She is a, in fact an actor and she's saying these words because they are written out for her here. She shows the script to the audience member and says, I am saying the words that you are now reading on, on, <laughs> yeah. on the page. So that sounds like a, that that's been an attitude of yours for, for a while. Um, and I want to come back to theology again, because I'm curious whether that. um what came first, the, the writing or the, the interest in in those sort of bigger philosophical uh, concepts? Because that seems like the, the, what you just talked about in terms of the consent to be part of the performance, consent to be through um, through a story. Uh, it feels like a pretty big that could be a pretty big theological conceit as well. Yeah, I, I think. Rather, so the question is, which comes first, the theology or the theater? Yeah, I, I would say the theater. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I remember I was in eighth grade and somebody asked me to try out for the Fantastics. And I played the boy in the Fantastics in eighth grade. And can you can you sing that role? You have the range for, for that? Maybe then I could in eighth grade. <laughs> Um, but even, even as a child, little, a little, little boy, you know, I, my, my house, when I was like five years old, there was Jesus Christ, superstar hair and Joseph, the amazing Technicolor dream coat. That was what I listened to. And so I was into the, those things before, um, I ever had a inkling about theology or philosophy. Um, so I would say first comes theater and then, and then the rest, I mean, all, all I, you know, I think religion, religion is just a glorified form of theater anyway. Oh, expand on that. That's I mean, we all, all of us theater nerds who ever took a one at one class know that the, you know, that the history of theater is certainly intertwined with the church and putting butts in seats and, and doing the passion plays and whatever. But, but it sounds like you're saying more than that. Yeah. I just mean that people gather to see, um, to see something enacted. Um, you know, the Greek, the Greek, um, the Greek tragedies work that way. The mass in the Catholic church works that way. The people get together, they watch the thing happen and everyone nods. They go, yeah, okay, good. And then they go home. Well, so, and participate in some ways too. I mean, I can't, I can't watch Star Wars and not hear 
uh, you know, Dar Yoda say, may the force be with you without sort of internally saying, and also with you, um, mm. that, that, that call and response thing, I don't know. It doesn't teach audiences the right behavior, I think for, for most theater, but it, it's, that's there too, that participatory nature of the whole thing. Completely, completely. And, and, and I like it when, there's participation in, by the audience too, which is why recent tragic events works the way it does. Can I ask you about the the uh, uh, origin of the idea of recent tragic events? It's it's I have to say you you work you got some criticism for creating that play so as soon following the event as you did. Yeah, and I disagree with all of that criticism. I think that's nonsense because I, I the first question I want to ask, which is sort of whence the idea, um, because I don't. And maybe I'm wrong telling you what your play is about, but I don't feel like that play is about 9-11. It feels like it's about the 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 connection that people need in times of great stress and horror. Um, but I'm wondering what what was the the process that compelled you to create such a thing at such a time? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, I've always been kind of what's the word with confrontational or. You know, my mind just goes directly to the end of, of every thought and I just move on to the next one. And so when your mind works that way, you, you don't really give things much respect. It's like move on to the, you know, every idea moves to the next idea. So here we go. And okay. so I, I always like to be what's the word? I'm not trying to not controversial. I don't like controversy for the sake of itself, but I just go where the question has to be. But for my, for me, but what really pissed me off and made me write the play is actually in the play. It's when Katie Couric was interviewing the firefighters. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, and so as much as the play may be about what you said, which is people connecting, the play also has a real bone to pick with the media. Yeah. And the way that, that, that TV is on, you have that TV on through the whole show yeah. sort of relentlessly reliving. And I think, is it Ron who says, can we turn this off? We've seen the same thing a yeah. thousand times now. And yeah. I remember that specifically from that day. So the, the idea that it's kind of turned into a product that really pissed me off. And, yeah. and I actually felt like I had to write it really quick. I wanted to get at this while the question was still there. And when it premiered in Washington, DC, no one complained. No one said it was too soon. They were like, thank you. Yeah. Only in New York. In New York. Um, yeah. Because obviously, you know, they went through it. And although the Pentagon got hit too. Mm -hmm. So, but in New York, yeah, they're very, they were very touchy about it. But that uh, was what it was. Was that the extent of your personal reaction to 9-11? Certainly not. The, the, the irritation with the firefighter who claims, and in the play, he says, uh, they not ask the him. Fire, not uh, with the firefighter, with Katie Couric. With Katie Couric. With the, with the question being, yeah, the question being, how do you feel uh, in this moment? Uh, what's it feel like sifting through the debris, right. looking for your brethren and, and that right. ridiculous, ridiculous question? Um, there had, you had to have more of a personal reaction than just that. Well, I mean, I did, but... I feel like, you know, all of us have a job to do. And, and my job with regard to that was, was not to concentrate too much on those other feelings. Huh. Um, I, it wasn't my job to write a play um, grieving those 5,000 plus people. That wasn't, that's someone else's job. My job was to use it to talk about this other thing. Also because I happened to believe at the time that to try to write a play that was actually about it would have been the height of presumption. Sure. And really rude. Mm -hmm. So I try to make it clear that like this play is, we're relativizing this and we're going to put it over there. It's just an example of something. We're going to really talk about this other thing, right? We're going to talk about free will. We're going to talk about determinism. We're going to talk about interconnectedness. We're not going to talk as if we could dare to say, boy, how sad that those people died. No, duh, of course. It's yeah. But I would never, I would never have dared to write that play. It would seem mm -hmm. terrible. Do artists then have some responsibility to react to such, such events and to write about events? Is there a, um, does that make the best art if, if artists are sort of bear the responsibility to react to the events of the times? Um, I will say this, I think, that the best plays are part of the conversation that's happening right now. And like, if you're in a conversation with people 
And then like three years later, you say something back to them, uh, you know, in the middle of an, uh, people are like, what the hell are you talking about? But if you say it immediately, it's like, oh, back and forth, back and forth. And even a play like Waiting for Godot, which seems to sort of exist before time and be out of time, I don't think is out of time at all. And really is, is responding quite actively to the times in which it was written um, and to the post-war and um, malaise. So I think it was a very political play in its own way. Um, so I think it's good to, to be speaking to what's happening, but you can do it, as I said, as obliquely as you want to do it. Mm -hmm. Plays have, yeah, plays have to be reactive in, but not so, I, I guess. Well, I'm tired of being hit over the head with everything. Like I'm an idiot. I would rather, um, there be more mystery and, um, things be more provocative so that I have to sit and question and muse over a thing. So that's what I appreciate about the play as well. Well, thank you. I mean, I think, thank you. I think a lot of plays, especially with the theater audience being what it is, a lot of plays are like inviting people to come and agree with something they already agree with. Mm -hmm. And that's a drag like, and it's, it's a, you you are confrontational. I mean, if you're if you're looking to set yourself up right away as as uh, in conflict with, with an audience, that's a bit of a confrontation as a playwright. No, well, I, but I think I don't think it's much of a confrontation because I think deep deep down people actually want to be engaged. They yeah. want they want questions to be put before them. They want to be asked to think about things, um, but they just don't want to be. And by the way, this is a totally separate issue from like putting on a show. Like I would, you know, if I had. Yeah. You know, I would always love to go see a production of You Can't Take It With You. What do you say to the people who say, oh, I just want to be entertained. Shoot somebody in the face, something up. I just want to be entertained. I, I say I totally get it. I, I If I could write different plays, I yeah. would. I'm, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't think you got that one in you? You don't think you have a, a, the next uh, Jason Bourne movie in you somewhere? Oh, well, no, certainly not that. <laughs> You know, I, well, I have to say, I have to tell our audience, I didn't put it in your bio, but but you are the screenwriter for Mr. Peabody and Sherman. I am. Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of the connection we have. You know, my, my sister-in-law is actually the producer of that series uh, oh. over there. So, uh, so yeah, so we, we have that in common there. Right? <laughs> I don't I don't know that. Did you approach something like that with, um, I mean, certainly writing a film is different from writing a play. Um, yeah, well, the way I got that job was <clears throat> they'd been through a couple of scripts and then they they hadn't worked out. And then they called me and they asked me if I wanted to. Someone saw mistakes were made in New York and thought, oh, let's ask him. He knows a lot of multisyllabic words. And so we'll call him. <laughs> let, me, let me just tell my audience really quick that mistakes were made as a two character play, really a one character play with a, an assistant who mostly appears off stage. Um, he is an agent of powerful agent trying very, or no, he's an executive producer, trying very hard to make a movie about the French revolution and trying to convince the the, play, the playwright that he should rewrite it in order to get the stars that he needs to do it. That's, that's mistakes were made. And it is uh, a tour de force. And uh, I think Michael Shannon, did he originate the role? No, he didn't originate it, but he was the more, most popular that I had heard of. Yeah, no, he originated it. He, oh, he did. He started it in Chicago. Yeah. And there's a, for some reason, a, a puppet fish, an animated fish that uh, he talks to. Yeah. Uh, another play. It's another play with puppets. <laughs> yeah. And then I interrupted you again. I'm so sorry, but they, so they wanted that sort of snappy um, dialogue, um, Hollywood dialogue. And they, they, they said, um, they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I thought about it and I said, well, here's the deal. Like you got to play about a dog who's a genius with a time machine and he adopts this boy who's an, a moron. <laughs> so I feel like at some point in this movie, the dog has to say to the boy, Sherman, of all the time travel adventures I've ever been on, the best one is the 12 years I've been traveling through time with you. Oh. And they gave me the job. And then they did everything in their power to make sure that sentiment never made it into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, and that is too bad. I have to confess, I've not seen the film, but I, and because we are literally almost exactly the same age, you were born in April, I was born in March uh, of 65. I remember all of those, those vignettes, those cartoons uh -huh. of Rocky and Bullwick when I was a kid. The research for that film must have just been so much fun. It was. And if you see it, you'll get to see, I also got to 
continue my fascination with the French Revolution because the whole opening sequence is about the terror. Oh, wow. So what, what is that about? What is your fascination with the French Revolution? I love the French Revolution so much. Like, I wish I could write a mini series or something about it, but I don't speak French and it wouldn't make much sense. Like, <laughs> well, how has this not happened to Netflix yet? They're dying for content. And I can imagine that a, a series about the French Revolution would last at least six episodes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> dude, I would love to write it. I love the French Revolution. And it's like, as, as um, Felix says in Mistakes Were Made, you know, talking about the French Revolution, he says something like, I just love the balls on those guys. You know? <laughs> They, they changed, you know, to change the names of the months, <laughs> like <laughs> such balls. It's like, you know, I, there was some Chinese, some, some leader in China in the fifties or sixties, someone asked him what he thought about the French revolution. And he said, I don't know. It's not over yet. Oh, and wow. I totally feel that way. The, that what the French were trying to do was figure out what on earth is the foundation for ethics and, and society without God. And it's such a great question. And they proved how hard it was to figure out because they didn't, it was a mess. Yeah. But America is still, you know, sort of flailing around inside this problem because America was founded as a Judeo Christian nation. Um, but with an ideal of secular secularism with an ideal in which everybody gets to believe in everything, which eventually leads by the way to, to materialism, because how can you believe, how can everyone believe in everything? You have to just start respecting everybody, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to, mm -hmm. you're going to stop theorizing about God and start talking about how do we respect each other, mm -hmm. which I think is a great experiment. And I think if there is a God God would have a lot more fun inside us if we stopped thinking about God and started thinking about respect. It would allow for much more free flow of the God part of us to move around. Thinking about God and these unanswerable questions tends to shut the energy down. Whereas let's talk about what we can actually do. Like we can do better at listening. You know, we, can we, can't, at, we can't speak for God. We can we only speak for ourselves. We can't speak for God and we can barely speak about it. So like, let's talk about what we can, which is like, hey, don't interrupt me, Craig, or things like that. Like that would make the world a better place if Craig stopped interrupting more than if Craig told you God exists, because what would that mean? It would be a meaningless statement. But if you said, Craig, don't interrupt me, I'd be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> that would be better. Yeah, yeah the first the first person I've heard who's ever sort of mirrored my own understanding of, of the foundation of the country, which was the country was based upon perhaps Judeo-Christian ethos, but the government was based on sort of leave us alone, believe what you want and, and not that. And I, I never heard, the first I've sort of heard express that um, historical uh, uh, opinion. Well, let's also remember that, and then the land belonged to a lot of other nice people. Mm -hmm. a, lot right. of, a lot of very nice people who we killed. So, yeah, the, the Judean Christian ethics seemed to go out the window when we decided that the yeah that, <laughs> that the West must be one. So what's coming up at a public fit? Our 2021-22 stage reading season continues with Diana Sun's Stop Kiss running for just one night on March 25th, and we'll conclude the readings this year with Will Arberry's. Heroes of the Fourth Turning on June 24th and June 25th. As always, admission to the readings is free of charge, but we still recommend arriving a little bit early to the library just to take advantage of the best seating. APF will be returning to the main stage at our main stage, the usual place, with Craig Wright's ridiculously inventive recent tragic events. It runs February 11th through the 20th, and our final main stage show Things I Know to be True by Andrew Bovell opens April 1st and runs through April 25th. For more information and specific showtimes or to purchase tickets, please visit us online at apublicfit.org. Now, in, in keeping with the ongoing recommendations from our theatrical peers, as well as the CDC, the wearing of masks during these performances 
will be strictly enforced. We're, look, we're doing our level best to make our audiences feel as safe and as comfortable as possible. If, if there's one thing we've learned in the past couple of years in these days of forced isolation and, and pandemic weirdness, we really do need these shared theatrical experiences, these emotional stories now more than ever. And, and I hope you'll join us. And thank you so much for your continued support. Can I ask about um, uh, Joyce Carol Oates? This is shifting gears a little bit, but I'm curious about why that particular uh, author and, and whether you have a, uh, a connection to her or a relationship with her for, for mm -hmm. our audience, the character of Joyce Carol Oates appears in the play, although it is made very clear by a um, very careful playwright that it is not in fact the Joyce Carol Oates. It is a uh, representation of a character who happens to be named Joyce Carol Oates and who happens to have written word for word, all of her uh, many books. She is also portrayed as a hand puppet. Right. Um, so people always ask me why Joyce Carol Oates. And I always say like, because her works um, are, are multiplicitous and strange, like, like the Lord of this world. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like, she's a great, she's a great sort of metaphor for something big because there's so many books and they're all sort of grim. And so that was part of it. Um, it's two, it's funny. It she's, is very funny. She's a small little lady. And so she's a fun person to make a sock puppet. And I've never seen a production without the curly hair that comes right. off of the, the puppet to sort of mirror her own, uh, curly do. And finally, by the way, um, nested boxes here, um, Russian dolls, uh, credit where credit is due this idea that an author could write word for word, what another author wrote, um, is absolutely stolen straight from Jorge Luis Borges in his short story, Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote, in which he suggests that this guy, Pierre Menard, wrote Don Quixote word for word after Cervantes did. So it's a stolen idea, too. Uh, why? It's another theatrical, uh, a fun theatricality in a play full of fun uh, theatricality. Did you have to run anything by her? Did you have a, a, a lawyer in well, touch no, with somebody who said... One of the like five things in my life I've done that was really smart was by declaring her not to be Joyce Carol Oates. I, <laughs> you couldn't do anything. I, I didn't do anything. It's true. <laughs> so no, she never bothered me, but I heard she did come to the play. Oh. And, and I think she wasn't very happy about it. Oh, oh. that's, that surprises me, but I would have loved to have been there mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. I wish I would have known why she wasn't happy. That's the real question. Is are you the curious? Why. About, yeah. Are you curious about her reaction at all? Or does that, does that interest I you? I don't know. I mean, you know, honestly, like, I don't like it when someone calls me where I don't know how they got my number. So I totally feel for her. Right. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> <laughs> are you, are you say you're, you say you're writing your play now. Are you still involved in, in, well, obviously you're involved in, in theater. Are you, can I, what's your, what are some of your favorite 21st century plays as we, as we, uh, begin this new decade or, or this new century? I would say um, my favorite play of the 21st century is probably something called An Oak Tree. Okay. Who's the playwright? Um, I can't remember his name, uh, but he performed the play and he, he came out and he directed it too. He came out on stage at the beginning of the play and he said, hi, I'm so-and-so. We're going to do this play in a little bit. Um, and he pointed to someone in the audience who was a different person every night, usually an actor that you knew and said, so-and-so is here tonight. Um, and they're going to do the play with me until an hour ago. They'd never seen the script, but they came an hour earlier. And so they learned some lines. Other times I'm going to tell them what to say by speaking into an earpiece that they're wearing. And other times I'm just going to tell them what to say <laughs> right to their face and then they'll do it. And then everyone says, okay, great. So let's start the play. And then he starts just shifts gears and he starts talking as if he's a hypnotist in a bar. And he invites 10 volunteers up onto the stage. And the last one is that actor person that we've been warned is actually in the play. And he starts doing hypnotist bar hypnotism tricks with these volunteers. And it works. People do, they cluck like chickens and they do these things because that's what people do. 
And so already you're in a double reality where you know people are going along with it, but that's a perfect representation of what happens with bar hypnotism, uh -huh. right? And then eventually he notices a weird vibe coming off of this other person and says like, I'm sorry, but have we met before? Say yes, we have. <laughs> yes, we have, right? And it goes on. And you gradually see that the story is about how this bar hypnotist drove home drunk one night and killed this guy's daughter with his car. And this guy has come back to the bar tonight to confront him about it. Oh, wow. But it's all done in this weird way where a lot of times he's feeding the person their lines. And I found, I just think it's transportive and magical and great. I mean, I haven't seen, there are a couple of plays that have recently been on Broadway where people have been like, I think a lady lip syncs um, an interrogation or a, she, I think people are getting into this now. I, I just, I like to see the mechanics. Um, you know, it's like, you know how a couple of years ago, like four decades ago, I guess, people began to like seeing the rafters and the exposed brickwork and all that stuff. Yeah. In architecture. The brick, work, the brick wall in the back, upstage. Yeah. yeah. So I like that in theater. Like, show me the mechanics of of mm -hmm. of making it happen because well, i don't just say again you seem very drawn to the theatrics of 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 the unusual of audience yeah, participation i totally don't want to see um lights rise on a on an upper man upper west side apartment <laughs> in manhattan but that's kind of what the joke is of recent tragic events like lights rise on an apartment but of course it's not an apartment right because the the stage manager came out beforehand and made you flip a coin so you know but like i don't like realism except in comedy like I totally will accept it with you. Can't take it with you. So well, that's fair. Why, why the distinction do you think? Because I think comedy is, um, I think it's just trying to do a different thing. I wish I could write comedies. I, I, I can't. Well, I you, mean, you don't, you don't, you don't feel that, uh, you don't feel that recent tragic events is a comedy. Oh, it has it's some funny. comedy. It's Very funny. funny. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, it's really funny. When yeah, I mean, whenever I think about that play, I think about Michael Escamilla playing Ron in the first production of it and telling Andrew that the way they drink wine in France is through a napkin. <laughs> through a towel. <laughs> through a towel? Yeah. Because that's how they do it in France. Yeah, to, to, uh -huh. to, to filter out the sulfates. Yeah, yeah. I love that. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I know. I know my plays are funny, but, you know, I always am writing to try to say something and Mm -hmm. um, I really admire these craftsmen who can just like make an object, you know, lend me a tenor. Like I'll, I'll go see, lend me a tenor anytime. I just want to see silly things. I like silly things. Hmm. Oh, by the way, one of my favorite plays in the world is a uh, dog's Hamlet cahoots Macbeth. I've heard of it. I don't know anything about it. Um, it's a Tom Stoppard play from way back when, but I really like that play a lot. Mm. What is it about it that appeals to you, the silliness? It's got, it, I assume it's silly because it's Tom Stopper. Totally silly and totally, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, you know, one of my favorite stories about a play ever is an actor friend of mine named Paul Sparks, who your listeners and your members have probably seen in TV a lot. He did a production of uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead many, many years ago. And two times early in the play, there were um, these long pauses. The director put in these long pauses, right? And then in the middle of the play, there's a speech about a box. And it's about like, if you were in a box, how would you know you're in a box? Mm -hmm. And so the director had already set up that there would be these long pauses, right? And so after the speech about the box, the actors just stopped and stood there and they never went back to the play again. And the audience eventually just got mad and... <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> uh, you, you do like confrontation, Mr. Wright. You really do. So good. He said like people would spit at us. They'd yell at us. And uh -huh. he would just, they'd just have to stand there on the stage and wait. Because, <laughs> because it's so perfect. Because the speech is about how would you know you're in a box? And it's like, well, here yeah. we are in this play. Like, can we leave? Can we just get up and go? I want to leave. Perfect. 
this may make sense. This may make sense to no one in the world but you, uh, Craig Wright. But you you remind me of Samuel Beckett. And because you brought up uh, Gatto earlier, I feel that the comparison is, is even more apt. There's a story about, about Beckett in one of his first uh, forays into the theater with a brand new crew. And he has a stage direction in his play that says the door is imperceptibly ajar. And the, sta- the stagehand would go up and he would sort of crack it open. And Beckett would call him over and say no. And he'd point to the script and say it is imperceptibly a jar and then the stagehand would go up and then try and <laughs> shut it again. And Beckett would call him over and point to the, to the stage direction. that says, no, it's imperceptibly a jar. And each time making him make these uh, uh, adjustments until it was the way that um, he wanted it to be. You strike me as that same sort of personality. A persnickety bitch. <laughs> no, no <laughs> not at all. Someone who enjoys, someone who enjoys the, the silliness and the, uh, the, the, that the silliness and the profundity can coexist uh, in I totally, I totally agree with that. I would never want to do that to someone with less power than me, but yes. That's a, that is, I forget that, yes, we, that we are woke and that is a fair thing to remind <laughs> me of. Um, we are well at the time that you have promised to give us. I want to thank okay. you so much for this conversation. Is there anything that you would like to, to plug moving forward? I don't know. Do you have a, a vlog or a blog or a, a play that's coming up or a TV series that needs more viewers? Um, no, what I would just say is thank you so much uh, for producing the play and thank you to all the people who come see it. Um, I hope that it is a pleasant night for you and that you get something out of it. And I never take it for granted that people want to come see my plays. So I really, really appreciate it. And to be a playwright is a great um, honor. And I, I really enjoy my life. Uh, so thank you. I, I don't think we're done with you as a playwright. I think we're going to take another look at Grace and another look at... Uh, mm-hmm. Um, it's on my short list. Orange flower water. Yeah, it's on, it's on our short list. But w- when you said earlier you're irritated by un, uh, unannounced phone calls, we are printing your phone number in the program so that anyone who has questions nice. can call you directly. So when that happens, you'll know from whence they came. Have you read Molly's Delicious? I have not read Molly's Delicious. You should look at Molly's Delicious. Well, now that I've reminded myself about orange flower water, I want to go back and read all four of, of those uh, uh, Pine, Minnesota Pine City uh, plates. Yeah. Pine City plates. Um, I'm yeah. also curious. I think I think the Emery was just reading to me the last monologue again of Orange Flower Water, and I have to tell you, she'll blush a little bit, but it brought her to tears that last letter that he reads. And like, another theatric, a theatrical device. He breaks the fourth wall in a letter speaking directly to yeah. the audience. Um, yeah. But it, it was it was it's such a beautiful, beautifully Thank written you. monologue. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And it will make me go back and read those those other plays. Molly's Delicious was a real turning point for me. I had written a few plays um, before that that had gotten done once or twice, but then I became friends with this poet who's dead now named James Merrill. And he kind of got me on a different path. And I stopped writing about um, what I what I thought I was right about and instead started writing about what I loved. And and Molly's Delicious is about a um, a young girl in 1965 who was from the East Coast who um, gets pregnant after a one night stand from a boy in the Coast Guard and is sent to live on an apple orchard in Northern Minnesota with her aunt and uncle. And um, she insists that the boy from the Coast Guard is gonna come back from Vietnam and marry her, but he never responds to her letters. And this young mortician shows up early in the play um, because he's seen her in town and he wants to marry her because he's in love with her. And she says, no, um, Jerry's coming back for me. Um, and no one believes her. And then Jerry comes back and asks her to marry him and then tells her um, that he's going to have to go back to Vietnam in nine days. And that's the end of act one. And oh, wow. <laughs> and it's all about this It's all about this girl named Allison, who I love so much, who says um, in the middle of the first act, when she's talking to Alec, she goes, Alec, I have more hope and imagination in my little finger than the entire ugly world put together. Do you know what that's like? And he goes, no. And she says, it's really lonely. Mm. And he says, I know what that's like. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to read it, read it <laughs> now for sure. And, and we didn't, we didn't get a chance to talk about, about it, but I just in real quick in passing, you've yes. done a couple of shows that are sort of modern looks at Shakespeare plays. I, I'm the, part of that, that cycle as well. Um, yeah. Arctic, isn't that a take on, on winter's tale? Yeah, because I was I was upset with Winter's Tale because I was so annoyed on Leonte's behalf because these girls were saying we had her hidden in the closet for 20 years. I'm like, don't fool me. Don't pull tricks on me. Like, and so I thought, let's do the play. Let's do the play. But she's really dead. 
Like, let's mm-hmm. really kill her. I love um, it. Because I feel like then the, then the real argument can be made that the play is there to make, which is the only thing that can create life again is art. You can't, because that's what the play does, right? In, in, in the play, it's a statue. Um, and in my play, it's a painting. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the play, my play, when the mother would come back to life, after the th- play was over, people would say to me like, do you, are you saying the mom really comes back to life? Cause she really did die in the first act. Yeah. Cause are you saying the, the mother really came back to life? And I always say in the play. I, I love this, this idea that yes, it happens in the play. That's, in the play. that's enough for me. Craig, thank you so much for joining thank us and having this conversation. So I appreciate truly appreciate it. It was a, a, truly a joy to meet you. Tell me when the play opens. We're opening February 4th and we run for three weekends. I'm coming to Vegas. Oh, we would love that. We'd love that. All right. Awesome. And I I think that's going to wind up this episode of Behind the Buzz, a a continuing conversation with us here at a public theater company. This was uh, season two, episode four. (laughs) And, And no one is more surprised than I am that Craig Wright agreed to talk with us. Uh, today, but I'm really glad he did. Um, If you enjoy these conversations, please take a moment to subscribe. We've got the rest of this year's season to talk about, Stop Kisses coming up, uh, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, and then our our final main stage show, Things I Know to be True. And we'll continue talking with performers and directors and designers and and hopefully another uh, special surprise guest or two. You can tell us what you think by rating this podcast on Apple Podcast uh, or Google or Spotify or Audible or Stitcher or wherever you download uh, these conversations. Your feedback really does allow other listeners across the inner tubes to uh, discover these chats and uh, to join the APF conversation. Or you can contact us directly through email at behindthebuzz at apublicfit.org. G. Behind the Buzz is a product of a public theater company in association with Giant Leap Industries, Adam Paul, director slash bona fide badass. A production of Giant Leap Industries.